This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss with Dr. Howard Frumpkin, co-editor, along with Harvard's Dr. Samuel Myers, their recently published text, Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. Dr. Frumpkin is an emeritus professor of environmental and occupational health sciences at the University of Washington School of Public Health. Dr. Frumpkin, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Dr. Frumpkin's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, last year, Island Press published again, Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves, considered the first textbook for the field of planetary health. As the, as the title suggests, the work provides an overview of the planet's health under the Anthropocene era. It's a sobering account. As the work notes, for the past 50 years, we have been living beyond our environmental means or beyond the Earth's carrying capacity. As the work further notes, this is due in sum to the fact that no country today meets the basic needs of its population at a globally sustainable level of resource use. This in turn is due to a global economic system that assumes natural resources are inexhaustible or that no amount of resource use would reduce the quality of future generations and one that's designed to externalize costs. As is termed, we're an economy of unpaid costs. As the co-editors write, in, the, in an afterword concerning the COVID-19 pandemic, they state that our treatment of the earth reflects a quote-unquote rupture of the human relationship with the natural world. Again, with him to discuss planetary health protecting nature to protect ourselves is the text co-editor, Dr. Howard Frumpkin. One final note, this is at least my 15th climate crisis-related interview. So with that, uh, Dr. Frumpkin... I found it interesting uh, prior discussion in chapter two. So let me begin with this question, and that's this work's antecedents. That is the planetary health movement, again outlined in chapter two. For example, you mentioned the Planetary Health Alliance, which has led to, amongst other things, a new journal, amongst others, Lancet's Planetary Health. Can you explain to me how uh, this evolution occurred and and where we're at with it? Sure. I think we've been seeing an evolution of the concept of planetary health for several decades, really since the time of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and the rise of environmental awareness and ecological thinking. But the biomedical sciences have been pretty separate from ecology and environmental sciences for most of that time. On the other hand, we have seen some interesting antecedent movements. One is called One Health, which focuses on the the bonds between animal health and human health and ecosystem health. There's a movement with a journal and uh, the usual trappings of a movement called EcoHealth, and that focuses on ecological changes and human health. There's, of course, the, the subfield of public health called environmental health. That's mostly focused on toxic exposures such as lead and asbestos and air pollution. It hasn't necessarily taken a broader ecological view, but there are some exceptions there. Uh, there's the field of medical geography that looks at how place influences people's health. Geographers are often very good systems thinkers, and so what they do resonates a lot with planetary health. 
So all of these and more provide the foundations on which the, the notion of planetary health has been built. Thank you. I noted uh, Lancet's planetary health publication. I'll also mention the American Geophysical Union now publishes uh, a journal called GeoHealth. So let me go to, did you have a follow-up? No, no, go ahead. Okay. So before we get into the specifics uh, of the work, uh, let me just ask the general uh, overarching question. What what was your hope or what do you hope the text accomplishes? Well, there are some really important changes going on in our planet that affect our health and well-being. We want to raise awareness of those changes so that we can uh, change some of our behaviors and our policies and our practices, both to protect the planet and to protect health. And by the way, those aren't two different things. We can't be healthy without having a healthy planet to live on. So protecting the planet is the same as protecting our health. So uh, raising awareness of how changes in the planet are occurring, raising awareness of how those changes in the planet affect human health and well-being, uh, putting forward some ways of analyzing and thinking about these issues so that we can get the right answers when we address them, and then proposing some solutions that would help us both rescue the planet and rescue humanity. And I use that grandiose term rescuing. It, it sounds <laughs> a little exaggerated, but it's actually not an exaggeration. We, we are at, at serious risk of irreversibly damaging the planet, and that will irreversibly damage uh, our prospects as a species as well. No, absolutely right. I appreciate uh, your being straightforward on this. Your book does, in uh, part one, uh, note the changing planet, and you have several subtopics. Uh, and I'll just note a few. Climate change, of course, uh, biogeochemical cycles, changes in land use, land cover, arable land, water scarcity, etc. And so you work through those. Um, let me just, before I get into the detail, I did have another question. Since you're an emeritus professor and I've long studied this subject, I thought it'd be interesting to ask you, what, um, and since there are numerous contributors to this volume, uh, 18 chapters, and you wrote several of them, uh, what author's discussions other than your own did you find or find uh, surprising? Well, one of the things that's surprising is that there's a lot more to this story than climate change. Now, many of us have been paying a lot of attention to climate change in recent years, and for good reason. Climate change is an emergency. But even if there were no climate change happening, we would still need this field of planetary health because the loss of biodiversity the changes in the way phosphorus is cycling in the planet, the changes in the way nitrogen is cycling, our loss of arable land, the fact that we're using up soil much faster than nature can replace the soil, the fact that the ocean chemistry and the atmospheric chemistry are different than they were in our grandparents' time. For all of these and even more reasons, we're living on a different planet than our grandparents lived on. It's difficult to detect that and to appreciate it. There's a problem that some ecologists call the problem of changing baseline. That if, if my grandfather was used to a particular ecosystem reality wherever he lived, but by the time my father was around, things were different. My father took that new different as the new normal. Mm -hmm. I came along, things were different still, and I took that as the new normal. And then my kids do the same. So. As changes happen over time, we tend to adapt to those changes without realizing just how much degradation and loss may lie behind them. 
that's a big surprise also. Things just aren't normal. Things that seem normal to us just aren't normal. Well, that begs the uh, phrase you hear frequently, what's the new normal? And you're right. You do cite uh, in the volume, uh, there are uh, nine boundaries. Uh, two have been crossed. Research shows uh, the two generic, uh, genetic rather diversity and biochemical flows. Uh, two are in the zone you term of uncertainty, climate change, and land uh, system change as well. Um, let me let me go to um, one specific, and I believe you actually co-authored uh, this, and that is uh, the discussion that you have on a biodiversity loss. And the reason I bring this up or pay particular attention to it is I actually interviewed Paul Ehrlich a few months ago. You probably were. He co-published two recent works in the Proceedings National Academy uh, on the ongoing and accelerating uh, sixth mass extinction. Um since again you co-author uh, co-wrote this brief biodiversity discussion, um, could you explain what your findings or what your summary was uh, relative to this uh, problem? Sure. So let's begin with with the concept of biodiversity, which may not be very familiar to health professionals. And I say that as a physician myself. When I was in medical school, the only thing I learned about bacteria was how to kill them. Now that was a while ago, and I think. Uh, instruction is a little bit more sophisticated now. But the fact is that we mostly haven't had a, a, a nuanced appreciation of how many different species make up an ecosystem, whether it's on our skin or in our gut or in a forest or in a wetland. And those species evolved together to form stable systems, and they depend on each other. So that if you peel one species out or lose a species or damage a species, that has ripple effects through an entire system, effects that go way beyond what you might expect. Now, we know that from medicine very well. If you treat somebody with an antibiotic, you may alter the bacteria in their gut. You may even disrupt the balance enough that you make it possible for Clostridium to overgrow all the other species and to cause illness by virtue of that, what is an ecological imbalance. Well, the same thing is true on a planetary scale. If you inject pesticides into a particular ecosystem, and if you change the balance of insects, then you may lose what are called ecosystem services, things that a normally functioning ecosystem provide to us, such as pollination. And if you lose pollination, you can't produce the crops that we need to feed ourselves. So in system after system, these very long-standing, very stable, interacting webs of life can be undermined by reckless or ignorant things that we do, and that in turn can feed back and, and can damage our own prospects. Biodiverse systems give us not only food, but clean water and medications and uh, flood protection, uh, innumerable other services that we depend on. And if we lose the biodiversity, we are at risk of losing a lot of those life-sustaining services. Yes, thank you. You know, uh, in this section, uh, you conclude uh, in part that one million species currently face extinction, many within decades. Uh, so this is beyond troubling, uh, to say the least. Um, and, and let me just ask, per your opening comment about what was taught or not in medical school, um, I do find it surprising, as as dire 
and frightening as reading this literature is, there's been little uh, or no discussion, or this issue receives little or no attention, particularly in the healthcare sector. Is that your impression? That is my impression. You know, and I, I have to quote my daughter, one of my favorite people who is now a medical intern. When she was applying to medical school from college, she said to me, Dad, when you were applying to medical school, you had to take courses in biology, chemistry, physics, and math. And that's exactly the same set of courses I have to take now, but I don't have to take a course in ecology or evolutionary biology. I don't think you can understand biomedical science without having a foundation in ecology and evolutionary biology. And she said, Dad, this is ridiculous. Why is it that we're taking the same courses that you took a generation ago when we understand so much better what it takes to be a good doctor? <laughs> and I, It was a brilliant question and I had no good answer. I, I, I think that our medical education is still stuck in the intellectual paradigm of reductionist biomedical science without the appreciation of how life works, uh, that ecology and evolutionary biology and even some of the earth sciences give us. So it's a, what we're calling for in planetary health really is a broader conception of uh, human health and well-being contextualized in a, a big, complex, interdependent world of life. If you understand that, you understand human health and disease much better. Yes, and you cite at the end of your volume, uh, Barry Commoner's first uh, law of ecology, everything is related to everything else. And everything's connected to everything. <laughs> Absolutely. And as commonsensical as that is, you're right. It's amazing how siloed um, uh, we've become. Well, there we've, we've touched on some of the main principles of planetary health already, just a few minutes into our time together. Uh, the planet is changing in drastic ways relative to the baseline of, of uh, pre-industrial times. Those changes can have very far-reaching impacts on human health and well-being. And if we're to understand them, we have to understand them in interconnected ways. So those are some of the intellectual premises of this whole notion of planetary health. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Let me go to, um, there is a fair amount of discussion uh, in the volume, latter part of the volume, uh, concerning uh, economics. And uh, you note that, uh, for example, uh, the insanity of measuring economic health by GDP. In fact, I, I found your citing Robert Kennedy's campaign, 1968 campaign criticism of how we uh, evaluate economic growth just solely by the GDP as as maybe uh, citing that uh, as worth the price of the book. Uh, so I <laughs> thank you for that. But um, feel free to, to unpack what, what that means, uh, the inadequacies of measuring economic health by simply by GDP. But the, the value is you, the, the chapter, which I think you also uh, participate in, in drafting, um, identifies uh, say, several more intelligent ways to measure economic progress, uh, and what are some of those? Well, a lot of our modern economics uh, grew up and was developed not in the context of the global environment. And the economic laws kind of had a life of their own. So there are some mistaken assumptions built into them, and they're built in so deeply that we take them for granted. One is that Lots of things are free. So you might think that timber is free, 
and fossil fuels are free and water is free. All those things we take from the planet, we generally treat as free under most economic models. But the fact is that as we take them and as we deplete their stocks so that there's less of them around than there was originally, we're incurring a cost. We're using up the capital of the planet. And as we use them, we do damage that we often don't charge for either. So as we burn the fossil fuels, we create respiratory and cardiovascular disease, but there's no price put on that. So we don't price things properly. The the ignored prices are called externalities, and most of our economics doesn't take those into account. So our accounting systems don't work well. Another economic assumption that's mistaken is that we can have uh, infinite growth. But that absolutely violates the laws of physics. Infinite growth, at least in the way that we've been growing for the last couple of centuries, means constantly increasing use of resources. But we know that resources are finite, and we're at the point of using up many of the things that we depend on. Uh, So we can't have constant growth. And a third mistake in economics is that we measure progress by the GDP, the gross domestic product. But that was never meant to be an overall measure of human progress. And the problem with it is it doesn't measure what's important. It measures the throughput of materials and energy uh, when we make stuff and burn stuff and so on. But it doesn't measure human well-being, doesn't measure happiness, it doesn't measure fulfilling lives, doesn't measure health. It doesn't even count things like volunteer work or friendship or time spent helping others or caring for family members, things that are crucially important to a well-functioning society, but that go unmeasured by the GDP. So we're mismeasuring what's important to us. So all of those platforms of modern economics and many more don't really fit with the notion of sustainable coexistence with our planet and and healthy, fulfilling lives for everybody. Now, there are some other ways to measure progress, uh, and these are being uh, tried out around the world with very interesting results. So there's the Gross National Happiness Index. There's Mm -hmm. the Genuine Progress Indicator. Uh, Indicators like these measure not only economic activity, but also human well-being, the fairness. Does everybody get an equal opportunity to have a good life? Uh, the sustainability in the use of natural resources and materials, people's level of happiness and satisfaction with their lives. I think most of us, no matter where we stand on the political spectrum, would agree that all of those things are uh, together a much better metric of success for our societies, including our health and well-being, than just measuring how much material and energy we use up in our economic activities. Right. You say that, uh, per your uh, first point, that we simply measure inputs and outputs but not outcomes. Then you provide, I think, a very helpful list of problems with GDP. It ignores non-traded goods, services, and harms, as you noted or suggested. Uh, treats remediation costs as benefit, discourages dur- dur- durability, recycling, reuse, etc. And you go on, uh, ignores depreciation, capital stocks, etc. So I thought this was a very healthy detailed list of, uh, and how that then just um, reinforces, in some senses, this bad behavior. And I kept waiting for, and I did finally see, you did note uh, late in the book, uh, Garrett Hardin, and you know what I mean when I mention his name. Uh, In D.C., I have to say, on a weekly basis, 
I have to draw the tragedy of the commons conclusion. Can you briefly explain it? Well, the, the tragedy of the commons holds that if we have shared resources, and, and let's just use the commons in an old New England town as an example, and we all want to graze our sheep on that common, that it's to my advantage as an individual to graze as many of my sheep as I can, even if it diminishes your ability to graze your sheep, because my selfish behavior will benefit me. Now, that was a, a very prominent theory, and it kind of fits with the economic mental model that most of us are selfish, self-aggrandizing um, uh, creatures. But there's a counter theory to that that was put forward by uh, uh, one of the great economists who followed Garrett Hardin, Eleanor Ostrom, who points out that in many, many social situations, people actually do get together and, and jointly regulate shared resources to use them sensibly and sustainably. So stories of lobster farmers off the coast of Maine who divvy up the available waters and they put their traps in their own part of the water, but don't overdo it and don't take lobsters from anybody else's area. And when they do, there are social sanctions that are levied against them. So you might presume that people are just intrinsically selfish and that we will never get it together to share resources in a limited, sustainable, sensible way. But there's plenty of evidence that if we get together and create the right social environment and the right sets of rewards, we can do just fine at sharing resources. In fact, when I studied economics, the assumption was we're all individuals in competition over scarce resources. Um, and that was, that was, that was the presumption. So um, that, that, that's very much, um, I mean, uh, not to be overly political, but that is that, that selfish individualism is very much at the root of lots of political thinking and lots of uh, political systems, including uh, ours here in the U.S. But I think most of us, and this really cuts across politics, most of us would rather live lives that involve cooperation and some sharing and fair distribution of resources. And in fact, you know, whether it's a red state or a blue state, there are countless examples of, of people helping each other out and people uh, moderating their use of shared resources so that other people can get their fair share too. Uh, so that, that assumption is one that we need to call out and interrogate. And to the extent that it just isn't accurate or workable, we have to get past it. Right. Although you do cite uh, uh, late in the book that the poorest 70% of the world's population owns just 3% of the world's financial wealth. In fact, we do know the extremes in economic inequality uh, in the U.S. Um, uh, well, let me let me ask specifically about, while you do talk at length about health effects, um, and I didn't mention, but of course, the one that doesn't probably still get enough attention is the effect uh, the climate crisis is having on on foodstuffs and nutrition value thereof. Um, there's no specific discussion about the healthcare industry. And I was somewhat surprised because, of course, the healthcare industry, as listeners of this podcast know, is a substantial contributor to U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, estimated at about 10%. Um, and it appears the healthcare industry certainly has been ignored relative to its role, not only in contributing, but on uh, on how well the industry is addre addressing or adapting to uh, caring for 
uh, patients, for example, victims of climate disasters. Back to your your daughter's point about medical education. Was there thought given to any discussion about, and I realize this is a broad subject, it is a long uh, text, and there's so many other things that could be addressed, but was there some consideration or attention given to addressing the healthcare industry's role? Yeah, very important question, and, and I, I thank you for asking it because I'm sure it's very relevant to your listeners. So as you said, the healthcare sector in the U.S. Is a, has a big carbon footprint, and not only a carbon footprint, but a water footprint and a land footprint as well. Uh, we're a big part of the economy, and we're big users of energy and materials. On the other hand, that is a great opportunity because if we get it together as, a, as an industry, as a sector, to analyze our carbon emissions, to identify the opportunities for reducing our footprint, we not only make a contribution to tackling climate change, but given that we are trusted voices and given that we are anchor institutions in every community in the country, we can help be leaders across the economy in reducing our carbon footprint. So lots of things we can do. We can take a look at the process of delivering health care and identify where the uh, energy and materials are used. That goes into sources of energy. It goes into the food that we serve, as you mentioned. We can buy high-carbon footprint or low-carbon footprint food. It goes into the supply chain. And all of those are opportunities to reduce our carbon footprint. More than that, we can reduce unnecessary care because all the care that we supply for reasons other than improving people's health, and that means We've always done it that way, so we still do it that way. Or that means um, doing a test or providing a treatment because of fear of litigation, not because of mm-hmm. documented efficacy. If we reduce unnecessary care, we reduce our carbon footprint. And finally, and importantly, if we prevent disease in the first place and keep people healthy, we reduce the amount of care we have to deliver in the system and we make people's lives better. So good old-fashioned preventive medicine is not only good for people's health, but it's a really important climate strategy in the healthcare sector. Okay, thank you. I do want to ask a question, obviously, about your afterward. Uh, you did write this book, or this book was assembled prior to the pandemic, but you do have a concluding session uh, section on COVID-19. But before I get there, I, I feel compelled. We did mention Garrett Hardin's name. Uh, the other name I kept looking for in your volume and I never saw, and I, I held out hope to the very end, was James Lovelocks. And that's, of course, you know what I'm talking about, the Gaia hypothesis. The Gaia hypothesis, yeah. So um, <laughs> I'm not asking you to become heretical. I know it's it's highly highly debated in, in, uh, in academia, um, but I did find it striking that it just never appeared. And when you're talking about planetary health. Well, you are a great interviewer to pick out one of the things that didn't appear in the book. And I, I bet there were lots of things that didn't appear in the book. So we'll, we'll put that on the list for the second edition. But the, the guy hypothesis at a very high level is very consistent with planetary health. The notion that we have to think about the, the planet in terms of uh, interconnected systems, Lovelock proposed that that the planet systems are so interconnected and so self-regulating that the planet acts as if it's an organism. People argue about that. Right. But the notion that planetary systems are interconnected, that if left to their own, they will generally move toward equilibrium uh, and remain stable. Uh, 
it's really important because a lot of the changes that we've flagged in the book and that the planetary health people are concerned about and that the uh, transcending the planetary boundaries that you brought up before, David, that does exactly what Lovelock warns we shouldn't do. And that is to tip a system beyond some tipping point where it may irreversibly change. So if Lovelock's right, if the planet acts like an organism and it generally self-corrects, and if it's the case that we're mucking things up so badly that we take the planet past the point where it can self-correct, that can't be good for people. And so in that sense, the Gaia hypothesis is right there alongside planetary health thinking, uh, calling on us for a little humility and an attitude of stewardship and respectfulness for planetary systems, because if we care for them and allow them to remain stable, we care for ourselves and our grandchildren, too. Right. So uh, sooner or later, violating Mother Nature is is not a good idea. Absolutely. Uh, let, let's go. Um, I, I did appreciate, again, the, the final concluding uh, chapter on the uh, current uh, COVID-19 pandemic. You state that it was, it's a warning bell that it reflects a rupture of the human relationship with the natural world. And I love this phrase that we have proceeded with reckless insouciance. Um, so uh, much has been said about Connect, connecting the dots between, or as how as COVID is an example of of our this problem uh, writ large. Uh, please say more about uh, your sentiment and and your impetus for including this as as an afterward. Well, let me say something about the threat, but let me close by talking about the opportunity. So, as for the threat, you know, it's been long forecast that we would be seeing a pandemic like COVID. And we are very well aware of some of the, the risk factors to trigger that spillover of a, a zoonotic disease from animal species to human species. It's destroying animal habitat and moving more and more people into that animal habitat. So there's more contact between people and animals. It's our food system that in many cases has people depending on eating uh, bush meat and other wild foods, which can be uh, reservoirs of bacteria and viruses that infect people. And then, of course, it's our, the globalized world that we live in that enables a disease to spread very fast around the world. So thinking about some of the habitat protection, thinking about uh, food systems that we design intentionally to provide nutritional food to everybody at an affordable price without diving into reservoirs of wild animals, those are some of the uh, the um, lessons we can learn from this pandemic and some of the strategies we can deploy to prevent future pandemics. But if you look at our response to COVID-19, boy, there are some great indicators of opportunities there. So look at how many cities have reduced the amount of automobile traffic on their streets and have reallocated some of their streets to walking and cycling and outdoor dining and socializing. That is a really great indicator of urban design strategies that are safe and healthy and, and supportive of good social lives for people. Uh, look at the changes in architecture that uh, are emerging, proposals for better ventilation in buildings so that if the next pandemic comes along, we can, in an environmentally sound way, provide more outdoor air and recirculate it more to protect people. Uh, so in those ways and many others, we're actually seeing 
lots of indications uh, from the pandemic response of ways forward. I mean, just one more example, uh, parks and green space, people are flocking to the outdoors now. Um, and that's no surprise. We know from lots of evidence that uh, people find uh, restoration and solace and comfort and rejuvenation in natural spaces. The lesson from that ought to be we ought to have a park within 10 or 15 minutes of where everybody lives and build our cities so that they uh, provide green space access for everybody. So, you know, once again, the, the, the COVID response shows us some paths forward that are not only resilient against future pandemics, but also good for us in general. Okay, thank you. I want to applaud your last comment in the volume. You cite Charles Yu, um, and I thought this was very appropriate, so I'll just quickly read it. Uh, Quote-unquote, the grand shared illusion that we are separate from nature, that life on Earth is generally stable, not precarious, that despite what we know from historical and geological and biological record, uh, it's otherwise, and that uh, to think that we exist, quote-unquote, exist inside a bubble protected from the kind of cataclysmic event we are currently experiencing, close quote, of course, is, uh, as he suggests, uh, very naive. So with that, um, uh, Dr. Franken, maybe I'll just give you a final last word uh, you'd like to uh, provide. Well, thank you, David. It's been really nice to talk with you and, and to talk with your listeners. Uh, it's very hard to top that last word <laughs> <laughs> that you just quoted. But I think deepening our appreciation of, of just how embedded we are in the larger network of planetary systems, how related we are and how dependent we are on other living species and on the inanimate world, and planning to live uh, in ways that support those relationships and that provide health and well-being and meaning and happiness to as many people as we possibly can that's really our challenge going forward. And I just can't think of a more important challenge for all of us to roll up our sleeves and tackle together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you uh, for that. I wish you every success uh, with the book and I'll look forward to the second edition someday. Thank you very much, (laughs) Dr. Frumpkin. Thank you too. Very nice to be with you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, To see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.